Hey, it's PF, and I was hoping to get another new episode up this week, counting down the best new order tracks. We're going to push that to next week. I have all of the audio recorded, all the songs are ranked, all that stuff, but I didn't have time to edit it together, and then we received some tragic news yesterday. I don't know if you heard, if you're a comedy fan, that we lost the amazing Jonathan, and the amazing Jonathan was on this show back in 2017. Uh, you may remember him from, if you're my age or a little older, you may remember him from the 70s and 80s. He was kind of in that group of comedians, and he would make a lot of uh, appearances on the, T- the Tonight Show and Late Night with David Letterman, and he kind of had kind of gross out humor a little bit, but also regular humor, and you know he mixed comedy and magic, and he did it really well. This is kind of before Penn and Heller, Penn and Teller took hold of that. Uh, part of the comedy world, and I believe uh, he was friends with them, too, because he performed in Las Vegas for about 13 years, starting in 2001, so he knew all those guys, and indeed became a mentor of sorts to Chris Angel, Mind Freak, so they were very good friends, and he would appear on Chris's show a lot, and so uh, he was diagnosed with a heart condition in 2007-ish, I think it was, and then, or maybe it was later, but he retired from performing in 2014. His contract with Bally's ended, and he decided not to seek a new contract with them or, or anybody else on the strip there because he didn't think he was up to it. And he thought he only had a year to live. Uh, He pushed past that year. And in 2017, felt well enough to go out on tour. That's how we ended up speaking to him. I believe he was appearing in Minneapolis at the time. So we spoke to him about that, about the documentary that was made about him. And my boss, uh, Josh Sneed, a a comedian and also kind of a bit of a stand-up comedy historian, you could say, was telling me that uh, there's actually two documentaries about The Amazing Jonathan. There's the one that's on Hulu, but he said there's also one that is a documentary about how the real documentary isn't an accurate documentary or something like that. So I don't know. Do your homework on that one. I couldn't find anything on it, but it's an interesting thing to look up if you have a notion. In the meantime, we're going to replay episode, I believe this is 318 from the year 2017, and we're going to have a brand new song of the week on the other side of this uh, from that Nordista Freeze album that I love so much. But we'll discuss that at the very end. So the, sh- the entire show will play through. We'll fade out of that, and then I'll come back with the song of the week. In the meantime, enjoy this encore presentation of PF Tape Recorder an interview with the late Amazing Jonathan. Hey everybody, this is Al Madrigal from The Daily Show and About a Boy, and you are listening to PF's Tape Recorder. Enjoy. Hello there, I'm PF, this is my tape recorder. Coming up, it's The Amazing Jonathan. The illusions in, uh, are considered... Uh, when you say illusions, like the big stuff, like like the sword cabinet, I stuck with the magic. I still learned. I still wanted to learn magic, but um, comedy was first and foremost. You know. You may remember our friend Steve Byrne was on the show oh about a year ago or within the past year, discussing a documentary he had made about the Amazing Jonathan. And you may recall the Amazing Jonathan off of the 80s and 90s. He did magic. He did comedy, and it's kind of interesting. Uh, to hear how he positions himself, how he views himself and his career. I think you're really going to enjoy this chat. It was a lot of fun. Uh, You may know that he had some health problems. He's back out on the road. He is touring, and we'll discuss all that as well. Uh, We're going to have the song of the week coming up from Sagala and Ella Irie. It's a big hit over in the UK and across Europe and is not doing much business here in North America, but we'll we'll give it a listen. And then, of course, uh, as our friend Will Durst told us a couple of weeks ago, boy, if you like political comedy, you like creating political comedy, uh, we have an embarrassment of riches now, don't we? So here comes a dumb bit. We could do one of these every week, of course, probably every day. It's... What 
kind of nonsense is that? So the big controversy this week, of course, was the events in Charlottesville uh, last weekend. If you're downloading this uh, podcast the other day it comes out or a couple days after. Of course, the events in Charlottesville have uh, been in the news quite a bit here uh, in the United States and around the world. And one of the uh, interesting bits of fallout has been the uh, dissolving of the president's council on manufacturing. And uh, it was supposed to be bringing jobs to the U.S. and, and things like that. Well, the folks that were on that, about six folks resigned from that, and then he got frustrated and just told the rest of them to go home. But um, of course, they they resigned because they didn't want to align themselves with, uh, you know, some you know a position that was seen as maybe slightly white supremacist. And you know, even it's just not good for business. You know, bottom line, what their real feelings are or not, or how tolerant they are, or whatever the position in, or free speech, whatever. It was just bad for business. They didn't want to be part of it. So, but Trump has another reason as to why these folks resigned from his manufacturing council. Some of the folks that will leave, they're leaving out of embarrassment because they make their products outside. And I've been lecturing them, including the gentleman that you're referring to, about you have to bring it back to this country. And he says that with a straight face, as if this never happened. Number one selling I, I tie Normally anywhere in the world. That that shirt, you wouldn't wear that we shirt? We also have them in white and beautiful where, white. Where are the shirts made? Bangladesh. Bangladesh. Well, it's good. Okay. We employ people in Bangladesh. That's ties? Where are the ties they made? Have to These are too. beautiful ties. They are great ties. The ties are made in where? China? China. Ties are made in China. That, of course, uh, the appearance we played before on uh, David Letterman's uh, late show on, over there on CBS. And uh, boy, oh boy, uh, it's, it, it, that clip always comes back to haunt him. And I looked it up, and the only thing, of course, he made in the United States were those stupid hats, although the materials were imported, it turns out, and bottled water. The Trump water is bottled in Vermont and New Hampshire, I believe, and just about everything else is made overseas. So, uh, of, of course, I'm sure when the CEOs heard that, they were thinking themselves, What kind of nonsense is that? Amazing Jonathan is a stand-up comedian and magician, although he considers himself more of a comedian, even though he's really a brilliant magician. We'll be getting to all that in our interview with The Amazing Jonathan. Hello, Jonathan. Yes. Hi, it's P.F. Wilson from Cincinnati City Beat. Hey, nice to meet you. Hi, how are you? Good. Cool. Um, boy, this is a, a, an honor to talk to you. I've been a fan for a long, long time. Oh, thanks, man. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I uh, remember watching you on uh, TV and uh, and stuff, and uh, hilarious, and, of course, uh, entertaining with the magic as well. Um, so, uh, what made you decide to... Uh, were you interested in magic or comedy first? I guess it'd be a good place to start. Um, I was interested in magic first. I, um, I used to uh, do it in junior high and high school, and uh, and uh, then I did uh, the high school talent show, and, and that went horribly wrong. And, and huh. that's when they dropped the magic from my show, and and I dropped it all together for about a year, and then I I started street performing in San Francisco, and I added the comedy then. Oh, okay. And decided to bring the, the magic back that way? Yeah, well, that's the only thing I knew how to do. So, I mean, I, I just, uh, basically, I just uh, did what I did at the talent show, and I did all the tricks wrong on purpose instead of by accident. Oh, uh, okay. So well, I did, like, six tricks during the talent show, and, and every single one of them went wrong. So, 
was pretty humiliating. So I just took that format and uh, and uh, made everything go wrong on purpose. Ah, cool. And yeah. did, and of course, you you were uh, quickly became famous for kind of doing. Uh, Kind of, I don't want to say shocking, but I guess it's not right. Yeah, I, I was that. doing the razor blade trick where yeah. you swallow the razor blades and then pulling them up with the thread. But some guy on the street uh, gave me a blood capsule and said, "Try that, try it with this." And then when I did it, it was uh. like pull another reaction, and then and so yeah, I took that route, uh, the gory route. For, uh, after that, because it got people to stop on the streets, you know. Oh, okay, that's cool. And so, yeah. was was it difficult concurrently developing your comedy and your magic at the same time? Because, you know, it, it's hard enough getting good at one of those things, but you, of course, got brilliant at both of them. Yeah, I just, uh, you know, I, I took the comedy out a lot easier than I did the magic. You know, uh, the repetition and the practice that magic requires wasn't as fun as, as writing the comedy. You know, I, I had some pretty good teachers out on the street. You know, there's Harry Anderson. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, was out there and uh, he t- he I watched him and he showed me some stuff and uh, a couple guys that later were on Saturday Night Live you know so when I when I actually started doing it indoors uh, instead of on the street I uh, I started doing comedy clubs right off the bat you know and um, Dana Carvey was with me and uh, you know the whole San Francisco scene Ellen DeGeneres and yeah those guys were kind of coming up at the same time I was coming up. And, um, and then Robin Williams came on the scene, and he was, you know, he was a, a whole phenomenon in himself. And I remember him coming in with his Mark and Mindy contract saying he got a new TV show, and, and we all, you know, you're making 5000 a week, oh my God, you know. It's pretty wild. That's great, yeah, they, as they would say, big money in those days. It's big money yeah. now, actually, <laughs> if we're being honest. Um, so, were you from San Francisco originally, or was it like like Paula Pounds no, and those other I was folks? I'm from Detroit. Okay, there you go. Oh yeah, okay. Yeah, I was from Detroit, and then I just uh, went out there, and um, the people that we went out there with, we got in a fight with, and they left us in, in L.A. and they went back to Detroit, and then we hitchhiked to San Francisco, and uh, that's where I saw street performing for the first time. You know. And did you have a notion that that was going to be your your avenue into showbiz by street performing or, instead of staying in Los Angeles or because it? Well, yeah, I mean, I tried it in L.A. and I, there's uh, there's I have a picture of me like kneeling on the ground and doing magic for two two little kids and that was not going to pay my bills. Okay, you know, um, but so I went when I went to San Francisco, I was pretty much organized street performing. I saw you know what it was like to get you know hundred people standing out on the street watching you and. And eventually, um, so that's what I was doing. You know, my crowds got really, really big, and then I started getting arrested for it because um, they were calling it obstruction. Because people would go out in the street, and and the crowds would form and get so big that the, the streets were blocked, and I couldn't really control that. So they arrested me, and I had to get off the street after that because uh, I'm just getting to be ridiculous. I was spending weekends in jail. And, wow, that's crazy. You know, but did it getting crowds that size on the street? Did it make it easier to transition to stage, or were there other considerations you had to make when you started going into clubs and so forth? No, it was easy to transition because I mean, our, the streets are rough, and then, and if you can get a crowd down the streets when they're not really there to see you at all, but to you know shop and do other things, then you could hold a, a comedy club audience easily because that's what they're there for, you know. 
So, yeah, no, it was an easy transition. I mean, when I went in, by the time I went into clubs, I was already headlining because people didn't want to follow the, the energy I had taken from the street. Oh, you know? yeah. Yeah. So, uh, what, what kind of inspired your uh, developing your tricks? Is that, Did you, like, take... Uh, cause I know sometimes magicians use old ones and rework them, because I've, I've known, especially from watching the Penn & Teller Foolish lately, that we're huge fans of. Uh, yeah, Penn & Teller were... They were out there with me as well. They were... Yeah. They had their show on Broadway in San Francisco and off-Broadway at, at a place called the Phoenix Theater. They were just kids, you know. This was back in 77, 70, yeah. 78. And they were still doing with Penn and Teller back then. So I would go and watch them and Harry Anderson. And, and I just got the, the hang of writing comedy. I got the, the formula down, you know. I was There were these joke joke books that um, I was told about. Um, Robert Orban, who was a comedy writer, and he would put out these little pamphlets with jokes, um, just one-liners. And I, I got to figure out how jokes worked by reworking his jokes, you know. Yeah. I, I would sit in the library. You couldn't check them out, but you could read them there. And uh, I would sit there for hours and just learn how to how to rework the old material to be modern and and take the formula from those. And and then I got to be uh, pretty proficient at writing comedy, you know. And then then you start just thinking funny after a while, after years and years. And so yeah, um, yeah, you got to. I would go to the Magic Castle and watch magicians and say what would happen if they fucked up, you know. But, and so I would watch that with a slanted perspective and, and, and get good ideas from that and I would um, build my own props and you know it was since I was a teenager you know I was like in my early 20s and uh, building props in my apartment and trying them out on stage there's a lot of comedy rooms back then oh yeah yeah so did jokes ever inspire uh, uh, any any illusions or uh, different ways to do an illusion, or did you do get, put the illusion together first and then kind of the comedy was added to well, it? Well, I didn't do big illusions and uh, are considered uh, when you say illusions like like big stuff like like the sword cabinet and the levitation. Oh, okay. and, yeah, I mean, I, I I stuck with the magic. I still learned. I still wanted to learn magic, but um, comedy was first and foremost, you know. And um, now I. I tend to work on magic more, you know, because uh, comedy I got down, but yeah. yeah, I still, I mean, there's a magic convention right now in town in Vegas, and I was there like for three days in a row buying magic tricks and talking to magicians, and so I still keep up on the magic end of it, you know. So you're still in Vegas? Yeah. Okay, cool. And you like, uh, uh, pal around with, um, uh, Matt King and Penn and Teller and those guys? I know you guys go to yeah, each other's Yeah, I was with David Copperfield last night, and oh, I nice. had dinner with Chris Angel, I went and saw Chris Angel. Oh, that's right. You guys are buds. Yeah, we're. we're I see all these guys. You know, I went to had dinner with Chris and and um, went to a show with him. And yeah, I still hang out with those guys. We're a pretty tight knit community here. Yeah, it seems like it is a pretty tight community because I know you know Penn and Teller always comment when Matt King stops by and has some some kind words and uh, yeah. and so forth. Yeah. So how did you end up with your residency in Vegas? Because I think we saw you at the well, Golden Nugget, gosh, back in the yeah, 90s. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I played Vegas sporadically on and off, uh, headlining in Vegas um, at the Sahara. And then um, David Brenner, who was at the Golden Nugget downtown, um, wanted to take a two-week uh, summer vacation and asked me if I'd fell in for him for two weeks. And when we did, we sold out every night for some reason. I mean, it was probably right after the Comedy Central special. Ah. And we were doing pretty good business at the Sahara. But uh, 
So I did two weeks at the Nugget and sold out every night, which was really hard to do because it's downtown and not on yep. the Strip. Yep. And uh, people were having a hard time downtown bringing entertainment there after the Strip opened. So uh, the Nugget were thrilled, and they, they held me over for another two weeks and then another two weeks, and then asked me if I wanted to do a 10 o'clock spot after Brenner's 8 o'clock spot. And uh, so we took that, and we were there for um, almost two and a half years. Yeah, that I was... was there. And I lived there. I lived at the Nugget. I lived in, the, in one of the suites, and, and it was great. I mean, that's basically where I was able to save most of my money because, um, I mean, the money that they paid... Well, casinos are real generous when you're making money for them, but when you're yeah. not here, you know. Like David Brenner, he kind of was having a rough time, and so they got rid of him. And the guy, and and it was like uh, as long as I was making the money, they were making me rich. So ah, yeah, yeah. It's interesting with um, magicians in Las Vegas when they do a resident. A lot of them are are well known outside the of Las Vegas, but then other entertainers, particularly a lot of singers, uh, the late Danny Gans. Um, and some other folks, they're really not known beyond Vic, the, right. the French guy that used to be at Paris, uh, René, well, he used to do all yeah, the Yeah, the guy that did the voice, yeah, the yeah, voice yeah. impressions, yeah. And even yeah, Terry Fader a lot Fader of people bit. that come to town and, and, and think they're going to do really great business, but uh, they don't make it anymore, you know, because it's, uh, it's it's really hard right now because of the depression, you know, the recession and all that stuff. But, yeah, I mean, the reason I think I lasted long, as long as I did and Penn & Teller lasted as long as I did it's because we had a lot of TV backing us, you know, a lot of yeah. 80s, 80s and 90s television shows. We were on all of them, and and, and uh, that helped my longevity. But, um, yeah, it's just people that are like Danny Gans, like you said, as soon as they leave the city limits, nobody knows who they are. But they're certainly big stars out here, you know. Yeah. But that that's a, that's a hard thing to do nowadays. With, with You pretty much have to come in with a name. It's weird, too, because a lot of comedians I talk to say, you know, I haven't heard this so much lately, but a couple of years ago, I hear there's a lot of people saying, oh, that's the dream gig, man, to do a residency in Vegas and not have to go anywhere, man. That's the Oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. That's a, it is a dream gig because, I mean, I can sit, go on the road and make, you know, one quarter of what I make in, in a week on the road and then have to travel and do all that shit. So, I mean, yeah, people, Vegas used to be a town where entertainers would come in, in like, like an elephant ground, you know. They come to die, you know. And now, <laughs> yeah. now they come here to to try to get the gig because nobody wants to deal with the airlines anymore. You know, it's so such a pain in the ass uh, flying around doing doing shows that it's just to drive to work is the biggest luxury in the world. You know. Oh yeah. And uh, I miss that. I mean, um, when I stopped doing Vegas, I figured I I retired for three years. And, right. Uh, and then so. Now, now I'm back I, back working again. I have to be on the road. You know, there's no real place in Vegas for me right now. Because, so, uh, so what got you back on the road? I know you'd had some health issues. In fact, we, we yeah, spoke well, to... Yeah, well, I had a year and a half to live. And, 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 yeah. So I took that at its, at its face value and, and sat around waiting to die, and it didn't happen. So uh, it's been three years now since I was diagnosed, and... Uh, I decided to go back on the road, so I'm doing it um, improvs, and uh, but it's you know I thought it, I was ready to go back on the road, and I am, but it, it's it's real tiring for me, man. It's like after 15 minutes of doing my show on stage, I'm ready to sit down, you know. I'm, <laughs> out, I'm out of breath, and you know all the stuff that comes along with having a bad heart. Yeah, 
uh, it comes welling up. And uh, but it's you know people understand my situation. I think sure. And if I have to sit down and lean on a stool for for twenty minutes out of the show, they don't mind. They just want to see the show. You know. Yeah. Well, a lot they, of comedians, they, you know, said they have a stool out there anyway, so it's it's not. Yeah, but it's just, it's just that they just thought they'd never get to see the show anymore. Right. People were writing saying, "Oh, I, I, I'm sorry, and they never got to see your show," and so I'm catering to those people right now. That's cool. Yeah, because um, and we we we'd be anxious to see it again uh, as well. So it's good that you're touring. You know, we spoke to uh, Steve Byrne, uh, your friend, uh, uh, about a year ago, and he was talking about this documentary he put together. About yeah. you, I, I, so how, yeah. what's the status of that? Because we haven't spoken. Well, that's more. finished now. I just saw the rough, rough cut of it about a month ago. Okay, three weeks ago, and uh, he did a great job on it. I mean, it's amazing. It tells tells the story pretty well, and uh, and it shows me going back and doing my first show after three years, and 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 the crowd reaction, and it, it's pretty interesting. I mean, not just because it's on me, but it's pretty interesting just to do a documentary and. While you're still alive, and get to see it happen, you know, and get to spot. Hopefully, it'll it'll get out there and get to make the rounds. They're taking it to the film festivals first. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's cool. Um, you know, especially uh, you know having the fans come out and remember you fondly from, like you said, the, the days back on TV and on on cable and places like that. And uh, you know, it's, it's it's nice to see. It's amazing it. how, how big of a part of of that was their lives when they were growing up. I mean, people come up to me and. And some of them are literally crying, you know, and saying, "Oh my God, you don't know what it meant to me. me. My dad used to watch you. Me and my dad used to watch you when we were when I was a little kid, and we laughed together." And I get all kinds of stories, man, you know, and really good stories. So it's kind of heartwarming, you know, so, to know that you had some kind of an effect. Oh yeah, totally. Yeah, like I said, I remember you. You know, definitely a, a, an icon from the all those uh, you know com- young comedian specials and. And all those with all of your, uh, like you said, all those people you mentioned, like uh, Ellen and Paula Poundstone, and all the people out of that San Francisco scene. Um, yeah, yeah. Do you still see any of those folks around? Yeah, I do. I see them. I see them once in a while. I don't see the ones that have made a huge, like Tim Allen, and the, you know the guys that were my on and Roseanne Barr were my opening acts. You know, so that's how long I've been around. I mean, it's just been three generations of fans uh, since I've been here for since seventies. You know. Yeah. Um, but I still see um, some of them, but not like Roseanne will pop up once in a while, and 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 I'll see her, and and uh, I haven't seen Tim or, or or some of the other ones that are big and really huge. But I hang out with Terry Top, and, and 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 you know he's he's friendly. He's a nice guy that plays Vegas. Some of them come oh, through yeah. Vegas. Yeah, they all come through Vegas eventually, so I get to see them if I want to go see them. I'll, I'll see. Them. I'm finally, I'm glad the Caratops finally the the bad rap is off of that guy because, um, especially with his appearance on Marin, and you were on Marin's podcast too, as a matter of fact. Yeah, yeah him being yeah, on there, it was nice to know that he knows what time it is, and uh, he, he does seem like a really nice guy. He is a very nice guy, and people that see his show, who who were bad mouthing him, they 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 shut their mouths afterwards. Because, yeah, I mean he's got an amazing stage presence, and uh, he's very clever and. and you know, he took the, the prop comment. I never got that that stigma attached to my props for some reason, but he did. You know, considered to be a hack by stand-ups, but but now that's yeah, like you said, it's fading. But I never. People said to me, you know, you're kind of like a parody of prop comics, but I'm I, I'll take it, whatever you say. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm, I am a prop comic, but I'll take whatever you you know. 
Well, I don't have to go through the shit he had to go through. Right, right. Well, his was more, and it's just a matter of style. It's not one is better than the other. His is just more rapid fire, uh, you know, set right, up punchline with a visual. And yours is still kind of had that magic element to it. So I guess it maybe seemed to people that you were doing more with the prop that was a little more involved. But it doesn't matter. You laugh at both of them. So what's what's the difference? Well, yeah, the stand-up comics got to understand not only do we have to write the joke, we have to build the prop yeah. as well. So that's a, even harder, harder to do than what they're doing. So, you know... It's people. People are like magicians. They're like very jealous of each other, and and and, and uh, magicians are the same way. You know, they're they're. Well, sure. That's well. That's showbiz, as they say. I, mean, yeah, I guess you've, you've got your critics on both sides. Then I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've been real lucky to to be able to have fans. See, I can ride the fence on on like like if you hang out with Copperfield, you don't hang out with Chris Angel and vice versa. But I I can ride the fence on both of them because I'm not I'm not a threat to either of them. You know. Yeah. So so it's you know. I'm kind of the, the invisible man in the room when it comes to you know politics and that kind of stuff. Uh, well, okay, well, I'll let you go. I feel I've taken up uh, a lot of your time already, and um, uh, thank you for d- doing the interview. And um, we'll see you in Cincinnati here in September. And uh, glad that you're back out on the road for folks. This is very exciting. Yeah, for, man. For amazing yeah. Jonathan fans. Okay, well, great. Well, thanks for taking the time, Jonathan. No problem, man. All right, bye bye. Thank you. Episode 318 from 2017 with the amazing Jonathan Mudd. What a super nice guy. Uh, and it's just, ugh, when when people start passing, Sally Kellerman we just lost from the movie MASH. Star Trek fans remember her from the second pilot of the TV series, Star Trek. And boy, oh boy, uh, well, you did lose people. It's just sad you don't know. Uh, but go to the doctor, kids. That's what I keep telling you. Uh, some people I went to high school with, I just found out, passed away. And rather quickly, uh, undiagnosed conditions, weren't feeling well, went to the doctor, suddenly discovered things were wrong and things were way wrong. And so, yeah, go to the doctor. Can't stress that enough. Go to the doctor. Even if you're a young person, go to the doctor regularly. You never know. Something could be wrong. And if not, then fine. All right, so we're right to the song of the week. Uh, I remember I discovered this album via my other boss, Darren. Darren and Josh own the t-shirt company, and uh, it was Darren's friend that turned him on to this fellow Nordista Freeze from Nashville, Tennessee, and I'm hoping to get this album reviewed for Pop Culture Beast. It is such a good album, and uh, this is probably my favorite track on the album. It is one of the singles. It sort of, the whole album is supposed to be inspired by Pet Sounds by the Beach Boys, although the first track sounds a lot more like The Strokes, like The Strokes' second album in particular, but you can start to feel the Pet Soundsness of it as a whole as you listen to the whole album. The second track, Wisteria, very much so echoes Pet Sounds. This track, though, reminds me more of a fellow named Rocky Erickson, who you may or may not be familiar with. He was a psychedelic rock performer from Texas. It was active in the, I guess, late 60s and into the 70s, and one of those guys that influenced people, so maybe that's how you'd know about him. But anyway, this track reminds me a lot of a, would be a Rocky Erickson tune. I, I always call him Rocky because it's R-O-K-Y, but it's pronounced Rocky. So I, in my head, I always thought it was Rocky, and then someone told me, no, no, that's Rocky. It's Rocky Erickson. So anyway, this is, I guess you would say, is the Rocky Erickson-inspired All I Want to Do from the Nordista Freeze album, which I forgot the name of the Nordista Freeze album. Let me see. What is it called here? I'll look it up for you in my information tunes. I'll just vamp here a bit, and I will also tell you that uh, you can... Of course, stream this from all your usual platforms, but uh, you would probably do him a favor if you were to actually go out and buy it. Um, 
or maybe stream it a lot because uh, I guess he's not in really great financial shape. This is all he does. He tours, of course, just like all of the other musicians we know and love. You know, the pandemic was really hard on him. He we used to tour around the region. He was just in Cincinnati, but we were out of town and missed him. So hopefully he'll be back soon. The album is Big Sky Pipe Dream, kind of pet sounds sounding, late 60s sounding in it. And this is the, uh, I would say probably the best track on the album. It is one of the singles, as I said. This is all I want to do. PF Tape Recorder, so long and thanks for listening. All I wanna do is be 